and online pastor here at E-Free. I have a bottle of water. I was coughing a lot during the first service on the tail end of a cold, so if I cough or drink water, please forgive me. But uh, thank you so much for being here this morning. It is a joy to be able to read God's Word with you. We're going to be reading John chapter 12, 20 through 50 together, and you could potentially turn there and kind of what we're talking about this morning, we see uh, some Greek men who are curious. And just to get your, your blood flowing a little bit, I want you to tell the person next to you, be curious. Okay, now I want you to turn to the other person that you may not know or like and say, be curious. Did you tell that person? Okay. Um, and... That's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. That's kind of the focus here of this message. But uh, one more thing. Go ahead and close your eyes with me. Okay. When you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? What image comes to mind as you think of Jesus? Okay, go ahead and open your, your eyes with me. You know, we are influenced by popular culture, by movies, by media, by art when it comes to Jesus. You know, maybe... You picture kind of a Jim Caviezel type character in the movie The Passion of the Christ, or maybe you've seen the Chosen series, and that's kind of the image you get of Jesus is the the, the man that's playing uh, Jesus there in The Chosen, or uh, one of the most mass-produced paintings of all time is this painting of Jesus here. Um, you know, a nice uh, American, maybe Spanish, lightly brown-haired Jesus uh, that was uh, made by a guy in Chicago, but uh, 500 million times. And so it's hard not to be influenced by art, media, culture, and when we close our eyes, we kind of envision these different uh, paintings, depictions of Jesus. Now, second, when you think of Jesus, what characteristics come to mind? What are his attributes or things that he does or says? And here's the thing. Oftentimes what we think about Jesus, his characteristics are influenced by the people that are close to us, the Christian people that we interact with, maybe even our family. And maybe when it comes to Jesus, when you close your eyes, you get negative feelings and emotions. Maybe you been around Christians who are judgmental or self-righteous or too political or whatever, and these negative thoughts and emotions enter into your heart and mind. My goal here today is for us to be curious and approach Jesus with authenticity and, and, and see where he takes I'm reminded of a story. You, you know, I was a youth pastor in a town called Blanket, Texas. Um, Blanket, Texas is a town of 402 people. When I moved to that town during the summer when I was in college, 403 people lived there. Um, and ironically, Blanket is right next to Comfort, Texas. <laughs> Has anybody ever been, and y'all think I'm joking. Has anybody ever been to Blanket or Comfort? Okay, we got a few hands. Love it. Um, and they, they left immediately. They, they got out of there. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so I became the youth pastor of First Baptist Blanket. And my goal at First Baptist Blanket was to do whatever it takes to introduce students, teenagers, to Jesus. 
And uh, I got there, and uh, students started inviting their friends. Friends started inviting friends. In a town of 402 people, we'd have 60-something kids attending our youth group. And I had a church van. I had the keys to the church van at 19 years old. Bad idea. And we said, well, why don't we use the church van to go pick up teenagers? And so uh, some of my regular teens would hop in the van with me, and we'd go pick up kids, and they'd say, hey, I think Mike lives over here. So we'd drive to Mike's house. The kid would jump out, knock on the door, Mike, let's go to church. Mike would ask his mom. He'd go to church, hop in the van. And realistically, this really happened. We'd be driving down the road, and some kid's walking, and he's like, hey, that's, that's Tom. You know, I don't remember their kid's names, but, uh, hey, they'd roll down the window. Hey, Tom, do you want candy? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> they would... It was kind of a weird deal, but they'd say, hey, Tom, do you want to go to church? Go ask your mom. And, and then so Tom would hop in the church van, and we were bringing all kinds of kids to church. But here's the thing about these kids. These kids weren't church kids. These kids didn't look like church kids. They didn't act like church kids. They didn't talk like church kids. They wore thick eyeliner on their eyes and black lipstick, guys and girls both. They had dark hair and dark clothing and they were goth, you know, do y'all remember that, 2004, 2005, and maybe even today? Um, and they didn't look like church kids. They didn't act like church kids. They skateboarded on the church sidewalk, and they caused a ruckus, and they were rough around the edges. You know, they, many of these students came from broken homes. They did not grow up in church. They weren't raised to respect and say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. And the deacon, one of the deacons at the church said, hey, Aaron, I need to talk to you. And he sat me down and he said, Aaron, we decided it may be best if you didn't pick up these kids in the church van anymore. And I was like, well, why is that? I thought because maybe the cost of gas, me driving around, picking up kids. And so I said, well, what about this? I'll use my, my car and one of my youth workers will use her car and we'll go pick up these kids. And he said, we, we think it best if you start to focus on our kind of kids. You see, here's what he was saying. He's saying, Aaron, these kids that wear all black and uh, listen to gothic music and have black lipstick, those aren't the kind of kids that we want to reach here at our church. And so we want you to stop picking up these kids. And it was crushing. It made me angry. It made me frustrated. How can a church who hired me to reach students Tell me, hey, let's no longer reach those students. But here's the thing. It did not deter me. It did not cause me to falter. You see, when we curiously look at the beauty of Jesus, the brokenness of the church can't phase us. Yes, I was angry. Yes, judgmental. Yes, they were self-righteous. But the cross was so beautiful to me and Jesus' death and sacrifice was so beautiful to me that it did not faze me. I continued further in my passion to reach people far from Jesus. We pick up in our message series here in the book of John, in chapter 12, verses 20. And this is the climax of Jesus' ministry. This is the end of his public ministry. And his name and renown is passing through villages and cities. Here are the key highlights that we're going to discuss 
here in these passages. First, curious people will meet the authentic Jesus. Jesus died to multiply. Jesus died to flip the whole world upside down. Don't put Jesus in a box. And today is the day for salvation. I'm going to read John 12, 20 through 43. And maybe you can follow along with me. Maybe you have your Bible or your Bible app. Starting in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among them who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I, have came, I, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there, the, um, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show them the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will, re will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told him, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. It's very important for us to get the proper pr picture as to what's going on here in John 12. That's why we read that bulk majority of, of verses. Let's pray together that God can communicate through his word to us. Father God, thank you for this message. Thank you for the ability of every person in this room to be curious and seek out Jesus. God, will you use... Um, this time together, will you use me to communicate what you have for us? God, may you be glorified. May you be lifted up. 
And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to focus here on starting out on verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. These Greeks are not Jews. They may be considered pagans or Gentiles, and they are hearing about Jesus. As we talked about in the previous weeks, Jesus raised a man from the dead. And when a person is raised from the dead, people get to talking. And so people are talking about the fact that Lazarus rose from the dead by the words of a man's mouth. And so these Greeks say, okay, we want to meet Jesus for ourselves. We do not care what other people say about Jesus. You know, at the time, um, the, the religious leaders were threatening people. If you follow Jesus, we're going to hurt you. We're going to kill you. If you follow Jesus, we're going to kill you. And they said that they were going to kill Lazarus and Jesus. The man who rose from the dead, let's kill him too. Okay, these Greeks did not care about all the pressure, the rumors, the lies, because they had heard that Jesus is doing miraculous things, feeding 5,000, putting mud from the ground, spitting into it and putting it into a man's eyes, and now he can see. Okay, let's meet Jesus. We want to talk to him. The Greeks were curious. It showed the reach that Jesus was having. Jesus' ministry has reached beyond the circles of the Jews and Jewish leaders and is now reaching Greek Gentiles. Curious people will meet the authentic Jesus. Jesus loves curious people. And he loves to reveal himself to curious people. Have you curiously looked into Jesus for yourself. There is a lot of noise about Christians. You know, Christians are judgmental. Christians are too political. Christians are too self-righteous. There is all kinds of noise about what Christians are and what Christians are not. My question for you is not what are Christians doing, what are people doing, but have you for yourself curiously looked at Jesus. I'm not talking about uh, do you listen to sermons on the weekends or listen to worship music? Great things, by the way. But have you curiously said, okay, I'm actually going to meet Jesus for myself. I'm going to approach the scriptures for myself and see who Jesus is all about. Jeremiah 29, 13 says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jesus loves to reveal himself to curious people. And then 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come the Son of Man to be glorified. Why does Jesus often not answer questions directly? You know, there's kind of a theme in John. Somebody's like, hey, Jesus, uh, tell me how's it going today? And Jesus just didn't even answer the question. He starts going on this whole completely different, seemingly tangent. So they, they said, hey, can we meet Jesus? And Jesus goes, Now's the time for me to be glorified. What is he saying here? What does this mean? There's two instances where he talks about being glorified here in John. John 2, 4, which is the wedding at Cana. Okay, this is very early in Jesus' ministry, and they run out of wine. Um, the mother of Jesus is like, wait, I have a supernatural son. Son, can you produce some more wine for us? And Jesus goes, hey, my time has not yet come. Second, 
John 7, 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He also says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And then the Pharisees and religious leaders say, let's kill him. And he said, hey, my time has not yet come. They invited him to the festival and they knew that, hey, Jesus, let's go to the festival. Everybody's gonna be able to meet you. He's like, my time has not yet come. What is Jesus saying? When he says, it's time for me to be glorified, it's time for me to die for the sins of the world. That's what Jesus is saying. The Greeks are seeking me, the Gentiles, the, the outsiders, not the Jews. The Jews are the ones who wants to kill him. It's the Greeks who are seeking him out. So because the Greeks, because the Gentiles are hearing about Jesus, now is the time for me to die for the sins of the world. The Greeks' inquiry signified that Jesus' public ministry had finished and his fame had reached the Greek Gentiles. When he says, my hour has come, my hour has come to die for the sins of the world. Australian scholar Leon Morris said this, in this gospel, we see Jesus as the world's savior. And evidently, John means, to, means us to understand that this contact with the Greeks ushered in the climax. Jesus sees it as evidence that his mission has reached its climax and that he is now to die for the world. Greeks included. And then he continues, 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus died to multiply. The disciples didn't want Jesus to die because he was safe. Follow me, listen and learn, and do as I do. Jesus said, it's better that I die because you're going to do better things than I ever did in my time on earth. He also said, it is for your benefit because the helper is going to come, the Holy Spirit. Jesus's death on the cross and his blood poured out is the seed that multiplies salvation. Because Jesus entered into the ground, entered into death, entered into nothingness, we are able to receive everything. We are able to receive everything that Jesus offers because he died. Jesus' death multiplied the love and forgiveness of God to the whole world. His death brought the beautiful love and forgiveness of God to every single person here. He, his death multiplied the children of God we can now be called children of God because of the death of Jesus. And his death multiplied the kingdom of God, his kingdom reign. God's kingdom reign from heaven is now being brought to earth because we bring his kingdom reign wherever we go as Christians. His death multiplied his kingdom reign. Now, verse 25, it seems as, as, as if Jesus is pointing the focus back onto us. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who uh, hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus says two key things here. You must hate your life in this world, and whoever serves me must follow me. It means, talking about hating your life, at least that you don't take much thought for your life in this world. 
In other words, it just doesn't matter much what happens to you in this world. If men speak well of you, it doesn't matter much. If they hate you, it doesn't matter much. If you have a lot of things, it doesn't matter much. If you have little, it doesn't matter much. If you are persecuted or lied about, it doesn't matter much. If you are famous or unheard of, it doesn't matter much. If you have died with Christ, these things don't matter much. I'm reminded of the story of the rich young ruler. He says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And we see this theme over and over again in John. People say, hey, uh, Jesus, i got a question for you. And Jesus hardly ever answers the question. Instead, he asks a question of them. What is Jesus doing? He's finding out what it is that we love, what it is that we serve, what it is that we're mastered by. Look at how he does this with the rich young ruler. So Jesus responds to him. One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. But he was deeply dismayed by these words, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owed much property. Jesus is not saying to enter into heaven, sell all you have. What is Jesus saying? I must be master of everything in your life. You must serve me and me alone. All throughout scripture, all throughout John, Jesus is pointing at the heart of what people serve and love. For this man, it was money and possessions. And Jesus is like, okay, do you want to follow me? Here's what I ask of you. Give me, give away what you love and love me and serve me. That's what Jesus is asking of him. What is it that you love? What is it that you serve? What is it that you are mastered by? You're like, man, if I could just achieve this, if I could just get this, if I could just have this, then I'd be happy. You know the, you know the things. Money, work, happiness, romance, Children, healthy, happy, whatever. We are designed and created by God to only serve one master, Jesus. That is how we're made. Nothing created, nothing here on earth will satisfy our hearts. And we know this. We see this played out over and over again. I'm, I think of Michael Phelps as he achieved eight gold medals in one single Olympics. He said later that his mind was so focused on achieving greatness that after he did, he's like, is this it? Is this all there is? And he went into a deep, dark depression because the swimming pool or the gold medals can't master you. They can't. They will crush you because at the end of the tunnel of whatever it is that you're seeking, it will not make you happy. It will not satisfy only Jesus can be our master. That is how we're designed. I've been looking at some research. So in 2004, when I started youth ministry, an article came out, actually research came out that said 80% of church-going teenagers leave the church after they graduate high school, when they go into college. And so in 2004, I was in youth ministry, and I said, you know what? I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep that from happening. It's 2021. New studies come out. 
80% of teenagers are leaving the church after they graduate high school. What is going on? Is it the youth pastor's fault? Is it the church's fault? Is it the parents' fault? Um, I was in a, uh, a seminary class, and my professor said, what, who is the most influential person in the life of a teenager? And some said, well, it's their friends, it's media, it's popular culture. Um, and many of us were surprised, but the number one influence in the life of a teenager is their parents, whether good or bad. And Jesus is saying, to serve me, you must serve me alone. To follow me, you must follow me alone. And I think the reason why 80% of teenagers who are attending and faithfully a part of a church are leaving the church is because I think we love other things. We're mastered by other things. The 20% that stay, studies show their parents love the church and love uh, being a part of the family of Christ. That 20%, there's a consistency of prayer, a consistency of time and scripture together. What is happening? What we serve and what we are mastered by is just being revealed to us. And so what, is, what am I asking of you? Don't fake it till you make it. What am I asking? Look inside and say, what is it that I'm mastered by? What am I serving? What am I going to? What is, what is in the back of my mind that says, man, this will make me happy? It can only be Jesus. Jesus isn't going to force you to love him. He isn't going to force you to serve him. He wants you to gladly serve him. That's the beauty of the gospel. When we receive the gospel, understanding the great debt that we owed, we're like, I will gladly sit at the feet of Jesus. Verse 26, he says, my father will honor the one who serves me. It's not talking about just some mild honor roll, like, hey, good job. No, when, when Jesus says, my father will honor the one who serves me, when we gladly serve Jesus as a response to the gospel, God takes Jesus' righteous, beautiful perfection and puts it on us. That's what he means by honoring us. So how does God see us from heaven? As beautiful, perfect, righteous children. That is the gift. When we serve Jesus, when we are mastered by Jesus, God honors us and says, I love you and you're beautiful and you're amazing, even though we continue to sin. We're going to fast forward a little bit to verse 31 and 32. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is not talking about the judgment of the inhabitants of this world. You see, the, the word world there is cosmos, and it has two different meanings. Inhabitants of the world and the ways of the world. Jesus came to earth to judge the ways of the world. The system of selfishness and self-preservation of this world that is ruled by the evil one. Jesus died to flip the whole world upside down. Jesus came to destroy the broken system of me, me, me. Here's how he did it. God, the all-powerful, all-knowing one, willingly gave up his life for the needy, the broken, the selfish, 
the sinner. The king God sent his one and only son to die for the desperate people. The power gave up his power so that the broken can have life. Jesus flipped the whole system upside down. Verse 32, he said, I will draw all people to myself. Here's another way he flipped the system upside down. It's no longer the insiders. It's no longer just for the Jews. It's no longer just for the powerful. It's no longer just for the rich or the, uh, the healthy or the cultured. It is for all kinds of people. When it says, will draw all people to myself, it's really saying, I will draw all kinds of people to myself, all colors, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all socioeconomic classes, all are welcome at the foot of Jesus. All are welcome to serve Jesus. All are welcome into the family of God. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that this Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus is laying out this case. He's saying, be curious and look, look at me. Look what I'm coming to do. And so we've seen him um, feed 5,000. We've seen him raise people from the dead. We've seen him put mud on somebody's eyes and make them see. We see God from heaven say, this is my son, and it sounded like thunder. All these have happened. And the Jews are like, wait, but you don't look like the Messiah we've read about in the Old Testament. What does it say? Don't put Jesus in a box. No matter what Jesus said or did, these folks are not going to believe him. Because they have Jesus in this little box. They have their Messiah in this little box. And if he doesn't look like this and doesn't act like this, he can't be my Messiah. The audience wasn't really curious about whether Jesus was the Messiah. Their Messiah was an earthly, powerful king, a martyr, the taker of land and taker of power. Have you put Jesus into a box? Jesus has to look like this. He has to act like this. He has to do this. He has to be this. He has to answer this prayer. And if he doesn't, man, he's not my Jesus. Or have you been hurt or um, angered by Christian people? And you're like, man, I can't worship Jesus because of these Christian people and what they've said and done. Man, let's not look at people. Let's not look at Christians. Let's not look at the failures of Christians, although they're, they're many. Let's look at Jesus himself. Who is he? What has he done? What has he done in your life? Would you be curious again and say, okay, I've been hurt. I've been wronged. I've been let down. But Jesus, what are you trying to show me through this pain? What are you trying to show me through this hurt? What are you trying to show me through this suffering? Will you be curious again and say, okay, I'm going to look in the scriptures for myself. Jesus, who are you? Show me yourself. Verse 35, and I'm going to read again 35 through 43 to help us get the picture of what Jesus is saying here. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. 
Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. No matter the miracles, no matter the wonders, no matter the signs, no matter the thunder from heaven, we can't believe. And there came a time when their ability to, to believe was no longer able to happen. Their will to believe came to an end, as was predicted by Isaiah the prophet. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that God um, kept them from belief. It, it means that they continued in their belief over and over again that God allowed them to have a state of unbelief. I don't know what you've prayed for, and I don't know what prayers you've had that are unanswered. I don't know if you've been hurt by Christians. I don't know if you feel like as if God has let you down. And if, if, if these are true, I want to say I'm sorry, because this has happened to me as well. I've been let down. I've had prayers unanswered. I've been angry. I've been frustrated. Will you be curious again? Will you say, Jesus, will you reveal yourself to me in a brand new, fresh way? Jesus, there's been some stuff in my life, and I and I want to remove that for now. I want to remove the distractions, the hurt, the anger. And I want to hear from you directly. I want to talk to you directly. Will you be curious again? I'm not arguing for blind faith. And I'm not saying that asking questions of God is wrong. But what I'm saying is, there's, there, for us, there's not going to be some specific miracle that's going to happen where you're going to say, okay, I believe it now. Because we see all throughout the entire scripture, miraculous wonders happened. And still people are like, I, I just don't know. I don't know if fire falls from heaven. You know, maybe there's a, you know, like a flamethrower or something. Or I think people had food hidden in their pockets for those 5,000 to eat. Like there's always going to be some sort of excuse or some sort of scientific explanation as to why things happen. And I think that's going to be true for us despite the fact that our church is doing miraculous things, that you are doing miraculous, wonderful things for the kingdom of God. You know, we sponsored over 370 uh, children in Magange. They have received food and education because of our church. There are people in our church who have been healed of ailments, of, of cancer, of sickness. There are... Uh, people that have been stuck in depression and brokenness and cycles of a sin and addiction that have been set free. There are miracle after miracle that, are, that, that is happening right before us. Yet we're like, man, I just don't know. I don't know. And here's the thing. There is not going to be a, an apologetic, some conference where they share the, the reason to believe in God. There's not going to be some 
a scientific manual that you're going to open up. And you're like, oh, now I believe. It's just not going to happen. Why? There is not a watertight argument for Jesus. But here's the thing. Tim Keller says in his book, The Reason for God, believe in the age of skepticism. What if God hasn't given us a watertight argument, but rather a watertight person? Jesus is saying, I am that person. Come to me. Look at who I am. Look at my cross. Look at my resurrection. No one could have made this up. Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Ultimately, faith and certainty grows as we get to know more about Jesus, who he is and what he did. There's not going to be an argument, an apologetic, a miracle that's going to happen. No. Our faith and our hope is built on the person of Jesus, who he is. Not what Christian people have done, not what your friends or family have done, but who Jesus is. He is what we place our hope and trust in. Will you curiously look at Jesus and say, man, I don't know about a lot of what's going on around me. I don't know a lot about the Christian people that I know, but man, I sure do know about that Jesus. And I have studied him and I've looked at him and I want to follow him. I want to be close to him. I want to be like him. I want to serve him. That is what we place our hope and trust in, Jesus and Jesus alone. Will you make today the day of salvation? Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for something to happen. Don't wait for some sort of unanswered prayer to be met. What if you said, Jesus, okay, I'm done making excuses. I'm done asking questions. I'm done trying to control how you act and how you behave. Jesus, I'm ready. Today is the day of salvation. Will you make that today? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this opportunity we have to open up the scriptures together. God, we have curiously looked at Jesus. We've looked at what he's said, what he's done, what he has asked of us. And Father, will we this morning receive the gift of salvation? Will we look at Jesus and Jesus alone as the hope of our salvation? God, will you renew in us a brand new hope, a brand new fight to serve Jesus? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.